you open up in your Bibles with me to Titus 1, Titus 1, verses 5 through 16. Paul, in this letter, is writing to his Greek protege, Titus, about how to lead the church in Crete. Titus is found several times throughout the Bible. Uh, most notably, he's at the Jerusalem Council, and he's an example of a Greek uh, believer who's uncircumcised, not following the Jewish law. And so uh, Titus is a close friend of, of Paul. They've worked closely together, and for some reason, we don't know the, the exact details of this, uh, Titus has ended up in Crete without Paul. And so now Paul is writing this letter to Titus and explaining to him the things uh, that he wants him to do. So would you read with me in Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharp sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. You've instructed us in life and in faith and in godliness. Then you give us direction and guidance by your providence through your word. And we, we ask this morning that you would bless us by it. Would you sanctify our hearts? And ultimately, would you show us your order in a chaotic world? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the early church, uh, you, you kind of had several situations that the early church was dealing with. First of all, the, most of the world was under what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This was, um, this meant that there was a common language. It meant that there was good infrastructure. It meant that there was freedom from a constant war and violence. And this is what, who most of the New Testament was written to. People like Romans and people uh, like the people in Corinth would be under this Pax Romana. And for a long time, we have lived in the luxury of living in a social environment like that. But Paul's letter to Titus is written to a different kind of world. Crete was certainly uh, run by the Romans, but it was a frontier place. It was a place in the Mediterranean that was far away from the, the center of the empire. 
And we, we find in verse 12 this explanation of what the Cretans are like. They're evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and liars. And Paul says that testimony is, is true. And so the, this letter is written to a people that are living in a chaotic world, living on the edge of the empire. It's a, it's a frontier place, a church that doesn't have uh, the benefit of this Pax Romana. And so I, I'm arguing today that we're living in a world that's much more analogous to this chaos, to this frontier place, than we are in the Pax Romana. For a long time, we've lived with a Pax Americana. We lived in a, in a place where the things were ordered. We could rely on uh, the government. We could rely on our nation. But at least two things have changed um, in the past 10 years that I, I think have changed our situation. First, we had the rise of what's called the negative world. Uh, Aaron Wren wrote an article on this in First Things. But it, it describes, he, he describes three worlds of evangelicalism. He says, prior to about 1994, we lived in a positive world where the culture was generally accepting, was generally, it was considered a good thing to be a Christian. And then after about 1994 to about 2014, we lived in a neutral world. Where it didn't really matter one way or the other. But he, he identifies 2014, which you'll remember that's the year that the Obergefell decision came down, as the transition to a negative world, where the culture we're living in is generally hostile to the gospel. Tim Keller has called this gospel inoculation, where people are rejecting the gospel because they've, they've been in an environment where the church has hurt them, where the church has failed them. And so we're in this world where the culture is generally opposed to us. That's the first thing that I think has changed. The second thing that I think has changed is we've seen our, our country and our nation uh, change directions, change um, how it's handled the world. We've seen even in the last year things like uh, what happened in Afghanistan, what happened in Ukraine, the domestic strife that we're experiencing. And so for both of these reasons, the rise of the negative world, the, the increased rejection of Christianity, as well as the order of the world changing and shifting, um, I think that we're in a situation much more like what Titus is experiencing in Crete than what the church experienced in Rome or Corinth. And so the central question we ought to be asking today as we enter into this new world, as we enter into a world that's hostile to us, into a world that's filled with chaos, the central question we need to ask is, how should we respond and live as Christians? And Paul gives us an answer. In a chaotic world, God calls his church to bring order. In a chaotic world, God calls his church to bring order. So we have three uh, movements today we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at what God's order actually looks like. What kind of order does God give us? Second, we're going to look at the chaos. What does the world look like? How do we identify when chaos enters the church, enters our towns, enters where we live? And third, we're going to look at how God's order actually resolves this chaos. So first, let's talk about God's order. Look with me in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the first thing to notice here is that God is establishing leaders. When God establishes an order, he's not establishing, certainly there's a spiritual order, but the first thing that he establishes is an institution, an institution in the church with leaders, with rules and regulations. 
with um, entrances and exits. We have, we have baptism, for example, that determines who is inside and out of the church. And so this institution that God ordains through the leaders is charged with maintaining order. And the means for maintaining order that he gives is virtue. You'll notice that describing elders and overseers, the way that these people are selected is by their virtue, by their morality. They're, the overseer, for example, must be above reproach, not arrogant, quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent. And so a lot of times we can think of these as checklists, that, which is not a bad thing. Certainly, if, if we use these as checklists, it's not going to hurt us. But these are more than just checklists that we need to you know, say, okay, does an elder meet these qualifications? These are virtueless. This is an old Greek form. Most famous is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And so virtueless are a Greek form that points to an ideal. They point up to something. And for the Christian, who is the least arrogant? Who is the most patient? Who is the most humble? Who is the most hospitable? Who loves good the most? For the Christian, that's Christ. And so what Paul is suggesting here is that elders, that leaders in the church, should be reflecting Christ to the people. And the people that follow these leaders should be following leaders that reflect Christ and ultimately following Christ. You'll notice there's nothing in these requirements that's unique to an elder. There's nothing in these requirements that's unique to people in leadership. Ultimately, these are things that we're all called to because this is the image of Christ. This is what Christ looks like. And so God establishes leaders. He establishes an institution that ultimately is supposed to look like Christ. A church that is supposed to look like the Lord that it serves. And this is the order that God is establishing on earth. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. There are two words here used for elders and overseers. Uh, the first one is presbyteroi, elders. The second one is episcopoi, overseers. Um, I'm personally inclined to see two offices here, and that's what our church, book of church order actually says. You can take a different uh, direction and say this is a restatement. Um, a couple reasons I would say that is, first of all, there's a requirement to be above reproach that's repeated both times. And also, it seems the teaching is specifically tied to the office of overseer. So, I just needed to mention that. If, if you have questions about that, I'd be happy to discuss that. But, so what are these leaders supposed to do? God establishes leaders. That's the first step in his order. But what are these leaders called to do? Verse 9 says, he, that's an overseer, must hold firm to the trustworthy, or that could be rendered faithful, word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the church is given leaders who are called to teach. And that teaching serves two purposes. It serves to encourage and convict. In the ESV it says to give instruction and to rebuke. And so this, this word, this teaching, has a twofold function where in the heart of the believer, it should encourage, it should lift up, it should direct us. And in the heart of the unbeliever and of the sinner, it convicts. And shows how the law, um, how we don't line up with the word of God. How we fall short of the glory of God. The Greek word for sound there is where we get our word hygiene. The idea is that it's pure, that it's clean, that it's ordered. When you think about how we are, we're impure. And the teaching is to be pure and ordered according to the faithful word of God so that our hearts can be purified. 
So the question for you today is, who are you following, first of all? Are you following leaders in the church? And are those leaders in the church following Christ? And how are you trying to establish order in the world? God tells us how. He gives us the church. He gives us the teaching of the word of God. And that's our starting point. And so often, and this is a, this is a good impulse, we think we need to go out. We need, to, we need to fix the problems in the world. But it starts not out there, but in here. We'll get to that. But it starts by ordering our own hearts, ordering our own church, ordering our own homes, and that order flows out and spills out into the rest of the world. So that's God's order. God gives us teachers, God gives us leaders, and he gives us his word to order his church. But how do we identify chaos? There's, there's two things going on here. Uh, first of all, Paul identifies agents of chaos in the church. And second, he identifies agents of chaos in the world, in the culture. Look at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So verse 10 is dealing specifically with those within the church. The circumcision party, those are the Judaizers. Those are those who believe that the Greeks cannot be saved without following Jewish laws, being circumcised. And so he calls these people insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. To be insubordinate is to usurp authority, to overthrow the order. Empty talkers fill the church with noise with noise that doesn't mean anything. And deceivers fill the church with confusion. And so these are agents of chaos. They're disrupting the order of the church. And Paul's big problem with these people is not the things that they're doing necessarily, but the things that they're teaching. And so this, this is identifying Paul's order, and we'll get to this more in later verses. But as we uh, think about how to sanctify the, or the order of the world, how uh, the order of the church goes out into the world, it starts with the heart and the mind. It starts with the teaching, the things that we believe, and that belief flows out into the works that we do. We'll talk about that in a minute. But verse 12 identifies the source of these things. Verse 12 identifies what exactly happened. And the short answer is that we left the doors unlocked. Verse 12 says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now that can sound a little harsh. Paul's, Paul's actually being really funny here. Because um, if all Cretans are liars, and a Cretan said this, you have a logical problem, right? So the, the liar is telling you that he, he and everybody else are liars. And so... Um, Paul is, is really demonstrating the problem with Cretan culture. Um, this is, again, a frontier place, a, a place of wildness, a place full of evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This is the place, uh, if you're familiar with the story of the Minotaur, the Minotaur lives on Crete, because Crete is a wild place. And so what has happened is these, these Cretan believers are tempted to bring cultural chaos into the church. The world is disordered out there, there are evil beasts, lazy gluttons, liars out there. 
And these new believing creeds are tempted to, to bring in this chaos into the church. The why here is that teaching has gone bad because of the lack of sanctification from the culture. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to be above the world. We're called to be in the world. But at the same time, when we come into the church, we ought to be thinking through that our, our baggage from the world. What are we holding on to that's part of the world, but that doesn't have a source in the word of God? What do we believe? What do we hold on to? And the, the second question we need to ask is, what, are we being an agent of chaos? Are, are we the ones causing disruption and, and unrest? And if so, we need to repent of that. We need to, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to make us new by his word. Instead of being insubordinate, we need to be subordinate and submissive. Instead of being empty talkers, we need to be those who speak life. And instead of being deceivers, we need to be those who speak truth. So we need to consider these things as we, as we seek to interact with a chaotic world, as we seek to interact with a chaotic culture. We need to ensure that we are not bringing that into the world, into the, into the church. That we're not bringing the chaos into God's order and disrupting his church. So we've described the order, we've described the chaos, and finally we look at how these interact. What's the solution? Look at verse 13. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound, there's the word sound again, in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So even deeper than cultural chaos coming into the church, even deeper than that, the root of all chaos is our defiled conscience and defiled mind. The conscience is moral knowledge, how we understand the difference between right and wrong, how we understand the difference between good and evil. And a defiled mind has to do with our intellectual knowledge. So by the way, don't let anyone tell you that depravity doesn't extend to that. Certainly, our minds are disordered and broken. And so we need purity to clear out and clean out impurity. There have been several approaches to how to do this. The world tells us that outward works cure our impurity. Notice what these, uh, those who are deceiving the church say. They say, do these things. Listen to our commands. Listen to these myths. The disorder of the world wants to distract our hearts with fruitless work. But the real way to bring order is by the sanctification of our hearts and minds. The word comes to us by the power of the spirit through the institution of the church for our sanctification. And the, that word is powerful. Uh, we're going to sing a little bit about this in a moment. But you'll remember when Jesus calms the storm. He stands up in the boat. And what does he do? He speaks. And the, and the storm is calm. The word of God incarnate gives his word to the world 
and it brings order. The chaos is silenced. And so for us, we need to let the word of God dwell in us richly. We need to let the word of God sanctify our hearts and our minds. We need to let sound doctrine, hygienic doctrine, clean out our impurity. Clean out the baggage we bring in from the world. Make us new creations and new creatures before God. When God's church is ordered, and when when God's church is leading her people into order, we see fruit in the world. I'm I'm not advocating for isolationism, where we just hide in our church and, and don't go anywhere. What I am advocating for is that we start with the log in our own eye, We start by ordering ourselves, by ordering our own hearts, by ordering our own homes and our own church, both locally and universally. Because when chaos, when we we try to fight chaos with chaos, when when we're disordered, when our hearts are disordered, when we're in sin, we can't bring order and peace and the gospel to the world. So the question for you today is, where is your focus? Is your focus on all the stuff out there? Or is your focus on your own home? Is your focus on what's going on somewhere else in the world? What's going on uh, in Washington? What's going on elsewhere? And those those things are important. We should be worried about those things. But ultimately, the thing that we're called to do first is to seek God's face and to seek sanctification, and to seek the help of the Holy Spirit in renewing us. Where is your focus? Where is your faith? Is it in the works that you do, or is it in Christ and his work, his finished work, that offers us sanctification, that offers us new life, that offers us the opportunity to bring his gospel to the world? This is our call as a church. Not to get dirty with the chaos of the world, but to be order, to be peace, to be love in a world of chaos, in a world of violence, in a world of hatred. This is your call as a church, and I encourage you tomorrow and each day that you focus on that. Each day when you get up, don't read the news, open your Bible, turn to God in prayer, and seek to be sanctified first and foremost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever.